Seven Run. For those of you who may not know, and for those of you who do, my name is Drew. And my part to play in the kingdom is that I get to be a shepherd. Now, what is a shepherd? Uh, It's not someone who occupies a high and holy place. It's just someone broken and redeemed by love who's called to help other broken people uh, be redeemed by love. And so I just want to say thank you for letting me be your shepherd. And today I'm asking for extra grace and an extra hearing. Today I want to uh, tackle a difficult topic, and that is Christian nationalism. And I just want to share with you that I believe that Christian nationalism isn't isn't Christian, that is. And I want to ask that in this politically charged day, that you would give me the privilege of just being your shepherd for a little bit and of pointing to some greener fields. Now, if in the end you don't think those fields are greener, that's okay. That's your call. When we stand the judgment, you will not be answering to me, but to the Father. And my job is to help you prepare for that final exam and for you to experience life-changing salvation and world-changing love. So I'm just asking for grace. One other thing. Some people say, well, I don't ever want my pastor talking about politics. Well, I'm not um, talking uh, about political parties. I'm not talking about political agendas. So much as I am about our living Jesus and letting Jesus live through us, in a highly charged and divisive political time, and I'm talking about interpretation. So I'm just asking if you will humble yourself, as I've certainly tried to humble myself, and as I am seeking to speak in love as a broken person, I'm just asking that you would seek to listen in love as a broken person as well. And I just want to say in advance, um, thanks for letting me shepherd you, and, and, um, and thanks for taking the time to run to the scriptures and form your own interpretation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just share with you some broad overview points that, that will lay a foundation. And then I wanted to share with you some of my convictions and they are from scripture. You may read scripture and interpret differently, but go to the scriptures after hearing, if you will. First of all, The first observation I want to just throw out there at a 50,000 foot level is that throughout history, human beings have been mostly wrong about God. Even people at the center of his work throughout history uh, in the world have misinterpreted him most of the time. Now take a moment and just let that sink in. Most of us who are religious throughout human history have just gotten it wrong. It's the story of the Bible from Genesis to Jesus. And it's a lesson we need to take seriously in our own day and in our own interpretation. Our best bet for getting things right is to assume we're wrong with a huge dose of humility. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 3, especially verse 8 and following, God gives us all the good of the garden and we turn away thinking he's kept us from the best. Wow face-to-face with God, and we misinterpret him and his heart. Even the name Israel given to Jacob in Genesis 32:28 reveals how very real the struggle has always been with interpreting things correctly and, and understanding God and responding to God with a heart of faith. It's always been a challenge. Even the name of the Old 
Testament people that God chose for himself, the name Israel that God gave to, to, to Jacob, a new name after struggling all night with an angel, the, the name Israel is a name in two parts. Uh, El, it refers to God, and, 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 and the first part is the word for he wrestles or he struggles. And, and so most literally, it is he wrestles God. And so it can be variously interpreted uh, as he being God, God wrestles with Jacob or Jacob wrestles with God. And, and it's just this beautiful portrait in the naming and God is so revealing in his names. All the names have meaning. And, and here it is in the very name inherent in the choice of his people, the formation of, of his witness on earth in the first covenant. It's a struggle to get right. Israel, the nation God fashioned as his witness, rejected God as king in favor of an earthly king and a human political kingdom. Throughout human history, human beings have been mostly wrong about God. And even the people that God chose for himself mischose, to make up a word, um, and misinterpreted the the heart and the will and, and the relationship with God as they refused to allow God to be God and looked around to the political uh, realities of the world and said, we want a king like them. And so in 1 Samuel 8, 7, God basically just says to Samuel, Samuel, don't sweat it. It's not you they've rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Oh my gosh. Here are the people of God rejecting God. Most of the time in human history, we've been completely wrong about God. So God sends his son as the final and ultimate revelation of his person and his will. And what do we do? We we try to make him an earthly king with political power like all the rest of the kingdoms around. But he wasn't and he wouldn't. And so we crucified him. How rarely we get anything right. And the recognition of this ought to drive us to our knees in humility before God with hands raised and and hearts broken just to seek his will and his face. John 6, 14 through 15 says, And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And by this, they meant, surely this is our political leader who's going to make things better now, who's going to create a political system that will free us from the oppression of Rome. Verse 15 says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Throughout human history, human beings have been mostly wrong about God. You see, Jesus always rejected merging his kingdoms with the kingdoms of the world. In fact, it was a a temptation he specifically rejected in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, where Satan, uh, the scripture says, in a moment presented to him all the kingdoms of earth for all time and said, I will give you all of these if you will just worship me. In other words, you can have something tangible, you can have something visible, you can have something touchable, you can have something that will bring adoration and praise, you can have something that human beings will, will uh, you know, be impressed by and that human beings will, will acknowledge is, is the most important thing of all. You will have political power. And Jesus said, no, it's not what I'm here for. 
And then there's the whole ugly history of religion marrying a political movement to parties from Constantine the Great and the Emperor of Rome in 337, the first one who, who Christianized a political system and, and reportedly had vast uh, portions of his legions march through rivers with their arms raised, quote, to be baptized, but their arms raised so that they could keep, you know, the sword for the emperor. And, and this is exactly what Jesus resisted from, from the, the moment of his birth to, to the, the last breath on the cross. Jesus rejected this earthly move. And yet over and over again, we, we look up at God and we say, God, this is how things will be now. This is what you should do. This is, this is what your will is. And we rarely listen. And you continue on through the history of all the popes and their marrying of, of the faith of Christ with the politics of man. Um, you, you move on to the me- medieval inquisitions di- designed to suppress dissent, to all the wars of the, the post-Reformation era in the 16th to 18th centuries. And all you see, all you see throughout 2,000 years is human beings misrepresenting and misinterpreting God and misapplying the revelation of the kingdom to human political systems. Throughout human history, human beings have been mostly wrong about God. And our best bet for getting things right is to simply begin with the assumption that we are wrong, and then we start seeking. Second thing, big picture I want to share with you is this, that Jesus came in the love of God to bring an invisible kingdom. And this is, every word matters in in this. It it absolutely is is critical. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious people of the day, were struggling as to what the kingdom of God would look like. How does it play out in the temple, um, in the in the seat of power? Where is this kingdom going to land when it lands? And Jesus said this. He said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. It, it doesn't come in ways that human eyes can see and that human hands can manipulate and make happen. It doesn't come in, in earthly ways through earthly wills. No, Jesus said, the, the coming of the kingdom cannot be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Although we're going to try, we're going to say these things and we're going to be wrong. And then he said to his disciples, um, that, that the kingdom of God is within you. And there it is. The kingdom is invisible. It is unexpected. It is, it, is, it is not controllable or locatable by human agency or will. It is divine. It is supernatural. It is from God, of God. In, in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus said this, and I want you to, to say it with me at, at home as well. This then is how you should pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This foundational prayer of Jesus 
was the prayer of the Son and Savior of the world for the coming of an invisible kingdom, that the name of God might be glorified, that his will might be done on earth as it actually is in heaven. His kingdom comes through the uncontrollable movement of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the love of God in Jesus Christ, not through human political parties or any other agenda. There is a spiritual nature about this spiritual kingdom that that cannot be contained. It it cannot be uh, programmed. It, it, It cannot be, you know, held like lightning in a bottle. It just doesn't work like that. In uh, John 3, 8, Jesus said this. He said, the wind blows where it will. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. There is a supernatural quality to that which is authentically God. And that supernatural quality is the agape love of God come down to earth, revealed in Jesus Christ up to the cross, the full measure of his love on the third day and empty tomb. All of this for love. And and this has to be front and center of everything. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, he commanded us to seek his kingdom, this invisible kingdom of agape love above all else. It is our first and ultimate loyalty above all other loyalties. And any other loyalty that rivals God is called an idol. And that's something else that the people of God in the first covenant struggled with up until um, the destruction of of Jerusalem in 587. It's funny, after God completely destroyed their political system and their national state and carried them into captivity for 70 years, they never struggled with idolatry again. You see, God's kingdom does not come through nations and political states. It can come in them, but they cannot and never will be the agency through which they come. So, this is, this is the reality of, of where we are in this day. The kingdom of God comes through life-changing salvation and world-changing love. It comes through a transforming personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is a moment-by-moment uh, exercise in, in faith-lived and love-given. And, and so here's Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. I mean, this is, this is the, the finale of his whole life as he stands before Pilate. And, and Pilate essentially asks him, so what on earth have you done to make all these people so mad? Because they are screaming for your head and your blood. What have you done? And Jesus answered in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't work like this world. It doesn't look anything like this world. It cannot be squeezed into the forms or fashions, the, the whims or whimsy of, of, of human you know, will in this world. It is different. It is divine. It is agape. It is like the spirit of God. It is, it is the wind of, of surrender to the, the spirit's movement in, in individual human hearts to be God's love and to love God with all of their heart, 
all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. It is countercultural. It is revolutionary. It, it, it cannot buy into any fallen politic. It cannot be located in any single political party. It does not work like that. It is too big. It is of God and not of earth. Jesus came in love to bring an invisible kingdom. And anything you do that is truly of him will be in agape love. It will have the same spirit as Christ. And it will work to reveal the love of Jesus on the cross as as the ultimate priority above all. And first of all, seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness and all this other stuff will will follow afterwards. The third thing I want to share with you this morning is that whatever's kingdom will be redeeming love. There are no exceptions. Following Jesus will never make you angry. It will never lead you to dishonor other people. It will never put you in a place to to be hateful to other people, to criticize them as a superior Christian. It will never put you in a place to call somebody else an unbeliever. And to, to say, well, you're not a follower of Christ. You hypocrite. You were dead and called in love to, to be born again in Jesus Christ. Jesus told a story about this. He told a story uh, in, a, in a parable uh, about a man who owed, owed a king. And depending on how you do the math, it literally, it literally could be like $11 billion in, in today's money. He owed him that amount. And the king said, you're going to jail until you can pay it all back and your kids and wife are going to be sold too. And the man came and begged for mercy and, and the king granted him mercy. And then he went out forgiven and choked a man who owed him $200 demanding what he's owed. And in the parable, the the king hears about this through his servants. He calls the man back in and he essentially throws him into hell. And so it is with everyone who claims to come into the kingdom of the son God loves and refuses to be loved and who speaks dishonor and who veils hatred in, in uh, contemporary Christian terms. This kind of hypocrisy makes God sick. And I think it gets us to Revelation chapter 3 where he says, I wish you were either hot or cold. But as it is, you are lukewarm and it makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. In a broken world, love is an insipid and weak word that's easily dismissed. In the kingdom of God, it's the truth of God revealed in the strength of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-13 declares the supremacy of agape and the wasted nothingness of faith and religion without the reality of agape being in every moment of, of love and faith. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus used the word command, which would have echoed in this new covenant, the foundation of the first covenant in the Ten Commandments. It's the only time Jesus says this like this. He means to be taken seriously. He does not mean these words to be dismissed as some sort of a, um, you know, a, a pablum, you know, response to the real world. This is the love that he offered on the cross that was as tough as nails. This is why Jesus bled out. It was love. 
that held him to the cross. It was love that bled. And, and when you and I mock this kind of, oh yeah, well, I'm supposed to love. No, you're mocking Jesus when we don't imitate it. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Real kingdom Christianity points people lovingly to Jesus. Are you living the command to love as Jesus loved? Without rival loyalties, with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, with absolutely no limits to what God has a right to demand and expect from you as Jesus showed on the cross. 1 John 1.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Jesus said his people will seek his kingdom first. And Jesus said his people will love in the exact same extraordinary way that points people to the redemption and salvation of God that he did. The fourth thing I want to share with you this morning is this. Nationalism and Christian nationalism are not of God and they're not the kingdom. What is nationalism? Nationalism is attaching ultimate loyalty to a nation state in hopes of attaining security and prosperity. In other words, my well-being in the world is going to be secured through and then you fill in the blank. And in nationalism, it's going to be secured by the nation and my loyalty and fidelity to it. What is Christian nationalism? Dr. Jeremy Bellard describes it this way. He says, Christian nationalism is the intertwining of the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of men. Now let that soak in for a minute. Because that's exactly what we tried to do in the New Testament with Jesus and he vehemently rejected it. He would not have any of it. On one occasion, he literally shoves the crowd away and runs from them into solitude. At the end of his life, before Pilate and the world, he tells them clearly, look, we don't do things like the world does. My kingdom is not of this world. In the American context, it's often displayed, Dr. Beller says, by describing America through language reserved for the kingdom of God. The, the true kingdom of God does not rest, though, with any nation or political party, right or left, up or down. Christian nationalism seeks the prosperity and the power of God through the establishment of an earthly political state. It models religious life on 1 Samuel 8, 7, establishing some sort of earthly king and kingdom instead of John 18, 36, completely different models. Christian nationalism is a confusion of loyalties. It's merging the identity of being a follower of Jesus with being a citizen of the United States. And those are different things. Paul Miller, professor of foreign affairs at Georgetown, says this, Christian nationalism is a political ideology about American identity. It idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. So I just want to ask you a question. And again, on Judgment Day, I'm not going to be there um, to either defend or indict you. I am your shepherd now, seeking to lead you to, to the heart of, of scriptures in 
Christ and his example and that of the apostles. Does the spirit of Christian nationalism match the spirit of the New Testament? I want to just be vulnerable to you, and, and some of you are going to, you know, um, I guess if you could throw things, you would. Um, but that's okay. I, I love you, and, and I just hope that you'll, you'll hear me. I believe Christian nationalism is idolatry. It's another human misinterpretation of God. I believe that it's an unholy merging and blending of national loyalties and politics with a crucified Christ who was only about bringing an invisible kingdom of love. I believe that modern political white evangelicalism that makes a kingdom not of this world um, look like the, the politics of this world. Let me rephrase that. I, I believe that modern white evangelicalism is guilty of merging the, the politics of our culture and society with the kingdom of God and merging those loyalties and, and blending those two kingdoms, the kingdoms of earth and the kingdoms of heaven in ways that are profoundly unbiblical. What does white nationalism look like when, you know, if, okay, Pastor Drew, what are you saying? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Pastor Daryl Knappen, um, in, uh, pastor of a Minnesota congregation, uh, wrote this on Facebook. He said, it was pastors who led the way in the colonial times to encourage our country to shake off the totalitarian regime of the King of England. Uh, on, on January 9th, he posted this. Um, he was referring to the Black Robed Regiment. It was a name given to uh, those ministers who supported the Revolutionary War. So that's what he's referring to. And, and here's what he says next. I was tempted to wear my black robe today and cover up my AR-15 beneath it. Um, but I thought that would be way too graphic for uh, all of you uh, in the church and for, for Facebook. But I would be part of that movement back then, and I may be part of that movement today. In other words, as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, the, the, the son of love born into the world, I'm going to strap on an AR, and, and I'm going to march on Washington. And I'm going to do this in the name of Jesus. And in, in the, the, the rebellion and the insurrection that we saw in our capital, the, the desecration of, of the heart of democracy, there were signs all over the place touting the name of Jesus. And I found myself out loud without even thinking about it as, as I saw one of those simply apologizing to Jesus for us misrepresenting his life again. One of the leaders of the invasion of the Senate chamber, Jacob Chansley, actually asked the rioters to pause in the rampage to join him in prayer. And, uh, and, he, and he offered this prayer to God. Thank you for allowing the United States to be reborn. That's John 3 language. It's the merging of, of the, the loyalty and the message of the kingdom of God in Christ with the politics of a party and the state. And he stood on the dais occupied a few hours earlier by Vice President Pence. And he said, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name, we pray. I don't believe that Christian nationalism aligns anywhere with the examples of how Jesus and the apostles interacted with the political powers and rulers of their day. 
And I challenge you in the name of Jesus to go to the New Testament. And and a part of of the error of Christian nationalism is that it uses an Old Testament model uh, of, of an earthly kingdom which rejected God as king as the model instead of the revealed New Testament model of an invisible kingdom of love that came through faith in Christ. And so I want to challenge you to go to the New Testament and to look at the message and the life and the interaction of Jesus Christ and of all the disciples who followed him in scriptures and to see how they interacted with the political regimes and parties of their day. And maybe the model of what they did and how they focused is to be the model of what we do and how we focus. And maybe we need to seek the kingdom of God first without rival loyalties in any way, shape, or form. I believe that the long history of Christian nationalism is infected with white supremacy and that the fear and hatred behind white supremacy supremacy, is an insult to the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that, that agape love dishonors no one. And, and, and there is this move in white evangelicalism that, that says, well, why do you have to make everything about race? Um, and, and, and even a, another um, stream in this movement that says, stop talking about race and racism. You're just making things worse and we'll never heal doing that. To me, that's kind of like saying, don't stitch the wound. Um, you know, uh, stitching the wound is the only way it's going to heal. And dealing with the injustices of racism in our day and in our culture and moving to a place where where the kingdom of God truly is coming in human hearts in a way that honors one another above ourselves. I believe this is the only way forward. And for those who say, well, well, you know, stop making everything about race. That's that's like, you know, it's like saying stop making everything red. Well, red is red and wherever red is, it's red. And, and racism is racism. And in our culture, wherever there is injustice and, and racism, whether it is overt or covert, whether it is systematic and structural, uh, you know, or, 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 or hidden like the dust of the air, I believe that the fear of, of white Americans losing their majority has been uh, Christianized into a, a false presentation of the kingdom. I think we need to repent and work strongly against that. I believe there's a huge difference between grateful patriotism and hateful nationalism. And I believe we need to get back to taking Matthew 6.33 seriously as if Jesus really meant what he said. I want to thank you for hearing my heart. I am praying for our nation. I'm praying for the church of the living God for us to to experience the life-changing salvation of Jesus in such a way that that it overflows into a world-changing love that truly helps people see why Jesus came and who he is and how they can know him. Throughout history, human beings have been mostly wrong about God. Now, in your one shot on earth, to live the life-changing salvation and world-changing love of Jesus Christ, how are you interpreting the New Testament? What does the kingdom of God look like to you now? Our Father, 
hallowed be your name. Father, you are the God who invites all people into your family through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We want to give our lives to upholding the glory of your name unrivaled and interpreted correctly. May your kingdom come. Your kingdom. Not anything diluted by human ideas or human agenda or human interests, but only God, your will. May your kingdom come and may your will be done, not mine, on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, thank you for hearing my heart and for hearing our challenge and for recognizing that you and I, as the church of the living God, we are the hope of the world. We are God's way forward for our nation and there is no other in Christ. If you are, are, are here and you don't know what it is to experience life-changing salvation, just, just let us know and, and, and we will follow up with you and let you know how you can experience the kingdom coming in your life through personal faith in Jesus Christ. May God bless you. May God bless Seven Run. And with all my heart, I pray that God truly will be able to bless America through our faith.